Last week we finished 2 Timothy 2, and before proceeding to 2 Timothy 3, I want to back up and start at 2 Timothy 2.22, because 2 Timothy 3 starts with, but, so we need to get a run at what we're talking about. So 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So do good, don't let your youth lead you astray, and stay with those who are also pursuing the Lord with a pure heart. You have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The idea here is that a good teacher, if you will, may be able by his words to reach someone who has fallen into sin and error and been captured by the devil and perhaps get him out of his problems. But then it says in chapter 3, but understand this. So what we've got there is you're supposed to be a good teacher. You're supposed to be gentle. You're supposed to argue respectfully, if you will. And perhaps in that you will get some people away from the devil. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I don't see the last days here as being in times. I see that as there's going to be difficulty just as there always are. So, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's quite a mouthful. And certainly as you read that list off, you can see all of the Twitter streams and all of that kind of stuff where people sit and pour out bile on each other, usually from the anonymity of a screen, You see people in the streets screaming and yelling with various gender hats on, various colors of t-shirts or whatever. So you see our society here, but you also, in a sense, see all of humanity here. Things are cyclical. One of the things that somebody said as they were debating about homosexual marriage, well, homosexuals have always been with us, and it's time we recognized them. The answer to that, of course, is murderers have always been with us. This argument of it's always been that way and we might just as well learn to accommodate it is foolishness. So all of this list of things, which, by the way, I didn't compare word for word, but if you go to Romans 1, you see pretty much the same thing. This has always been part of the human condition. 
So difficulties arising in the last days are pretty much generally caused by people. They're people with some combination of those characteristics. And what Paul is saying in verse 4 is avoid such people. And you have to take that in the context of argue respectfully with people who are in error and perhaps by your demeanor and your calm gospel logic, you will be able to save some of them. But there are going to be people that you're not going to be able to save, and it is a waste of bandwidth trying to do so. Now, you don't know up front what kind they are, because typically they don't have tattoos on, well, some of them do have tattoos on the forehead, but typically they aren't marked that way visibly. But you very quickly get an understanding of whether or not someone is truly interested in what you're talking about, or whether someone simply wants to rail at you. And at that point, you need to make a decision whether or not engaging with that person is worth your time. What Paul is saying is, in some cases, it's not. Just avoid them. So this idea that you can reach everybody is not true. Verse 6, 4, in other words, because among them, these people who have this list of attributes that he's just rattled off, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What's going on here is a couple of things. This always learning, Kay has a friend, she's an acquaintance of mine, a friend of Jim Sinner. Actually, I did run into her the other day. She saw me out walking and pulled over and said hi. Anyway, she is a haunter of Bible studies. She's always inquiring and always wanting and always seeking, and she doesn't settle on anything. There isn't anything that she firmly believes. It's always seeking after stuff. So a person with that kind of personality is the natural prey of people who come in and are trying to sell a particular brand of soap. What Paul is saying is the people who have this list of attributes that he's talking about prey on such people. Now the fact that he says women, being very unpopular in today's America, one of the things that it says in the garden is Adam was not deceived. Eve was the one that was deceived, and she baked up the apple cobbler. And one of the best Christian jokes I've ever seen is, yeah, if a good-looking naked woman handed me some fruit, I'd eat it. Which is men and women. That's who we are, what we are. But the idea here, starting at the garden, was that the woman was the one who was deceived, so Paul is sort of continuing in that vein. Anyway, we got this list of attributes, and people who are those kinds of people will then prey on often women who can't settle on anything and consider themselves to be intellectual, and they're always looking for a new angle, looking for a new kind of thing. This lady that Kay and I are referring to 
regards herself as very bright. And she's not stupid, but she just won't settle on anything. She always wants to go out and find something new. I don't know her social life. I'm now extrapolating. Part of that is so that she'll sound really good at a cocktail party. I know this latest thing. Appearing smart is important as opposed to settling on something and knowing it. And this is just people. That's the way we are. Verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding all the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. All right, so who are Janus and Jambres? Jewish extra-biblical literature say that those are the names of Pharaoh's magicians when Moses turned his rod into a snake, they turned their rods into snakes. Jewish tradition has it that their names were Janus and Jambres. It is extra-biblical, but the fact that Paul refers to it to a Timothy indicates that it's something they both know or they are both familiar with. So the fact that that theory or that teaching was current within Judaism and both of those two knew it indicates that they can refer to it and they both understand what they're saying. Just as in the book of Jude, Jude, in fact, quotes from the book of Enoch, which again would have been something that was a corpus of work that was familiar within Judaism. So when somebody refers to it, everybody reading the letter would have understood what he meant. Verse 8 again now. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So people with all of the negative attributes that are listed at the beginning of the chapter are disqualified regarding the faith because they oppose the truth. For those of you who were at Shabbat, talked about what truth is, in a biblical sense, because it's saying here in the context of Moses that Moses wrote the truth, which is to say something that can be relied upon. And these people are hawking doctrine, theories, whatever you want to call it, that can't be relied upon. And in fact, they are hostile to Moses and Scripture and the truth. Second Timothy 3.10 You, however and you, however, being contrasted with the people who have this list of characteristics. So you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So what Paul is doing is contrasting himself and Timothy with these reprobates that have that long list of negative personality traits. And he says, on the contrary, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my goals, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So all of those are positive character traits that are being listed in contrast 
with the negative ones at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Messiah Yeshua will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He obviously mentions his persecutions that he endured, and he's saying, if you follow me, you will also be persecuted, as will anybody who is faithful to God. The other part of that is, the people who have the negative character traits above will go from bad to worse and then back up to verse 9, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was to those two men. So one of the things that I said on Shabbat is both virtue and evil always come out, but they don't necessarily come out right away. The idea that these people can have a run of success for a while doesn't mean that they're going to be ultimately successful because they will eventually be found out, partially because nobody is ever satisfied with just a little bit of sin. If you get involved in sin and sin becomes a way of life and these negative character traits become a way of life, you keep pushing the envelope and getting worse and worse until you finally get tripped up. That's one of the pitfalls of leading a sinful life. A little bit is never enough. As I am fond of saying, what Satan does is he comes alongside you and pushes you in a direction you already want to go. I teach this in the context of demons. Demons will come along and whisper in your ear. For example, If a demon comes along and whispers to me, you should really go steal something. I don't listen to him because I'm not inclined to be a thief. But if I were inclined to lust or something else and that demon comes along and whispers to me, oh, I'm kind of interested in what he's got to say. So what happens is the demon comes along and whispers in your ear and it's not something you're tempted by, Just ignore it, and the demon eventually gives up. If it is something you are tempted by and you start to listen, then what will happen is that demon will keep moving you farther and farther and farther in a direction you already want to go until you go over the edge and are ruined. So sin will take you where you want to go. In fact, sin takes you farther than you want to go in that direction. Because if you were to rationally consider it up front, you would say, well, wait a minute, I don't want to wind up with a venereal disease in the gutter dying. I just want a little fun. But what the demon does is just keeps pushing you until you wind up where you really didn't want to be, and if you knew you were going to wind up there, you wouldn't have started. So we're all the way down to 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Messiah Yeshua. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So let's pause there for a minute. One of the things that I told you is that I'm reading this book called The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture by a guy named Yoram Hozoni. And as we came in tonight, my wife is looking up at the 
whiteboard up there where the Calvinists have written some notes for their class. And she's asked me, what are the five solas? It's Latin, and it's from the Reformation, and I will read them to you. The five solas of the Reformation, which distinguish the Reformers from the teachings of Rome, include sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and soli dio gloria, glory to God alone. Those are the five solaces. What the Sunday church tries to do is they try and distill scripture into catechisms. These are given to people to memorize. And if you memorize those, you got everything you need. And that is misleading because the Hebrew scriptures defy catechism. So what you have in the Hebrew scripture is a massive book. What a catechism does is try to distill that massive book into five succinct phrases, talking points. And the idea is if you believe these talking points, you're in. And what I'm saying to you is not that the talking points are incorrect, but they're misleading in that they lead you to believe that once you got those, I got my Jesus skates on and here we go, I'm done. And what the Bible does, especially in the Hebrew scriptures and in the apostolic scriptures as well, is it presents you with case studies. It presents you with problems and people solving those problems. It presents you with some rules, 613 of them. And the whole idea here is this is supposed to train you up so that you can live a life that's pleasing to God. Now, there isn't any question that salvation, if you will, is a gift of God. He's given it to us. All you have to do is accept it. But once you've done that, there's an entire Bible there to learn and to pattern your life after. So you've got Moses, you've got the Proverbs, you've got the case studies in the prophets and so forth. And this is distilled even farther. If you say the Jesus prayer, you're in. And that is so simplistic as to be misleading. It isn't that the soundbite is technically incorrect. It's the giving you this little soundbites as if you've got it all. And you don't. Getting it all takes a lifetime of study. Getting it all takes a lifetime of being in the scriptures. Getting it all takes a lifetime of walking in it so that you come to understand it in your bones. So we don't have a creed here. We don't have a catechism here or anything like that. What we do is we sit around, we read the scriptures, and we discuss them, and one hopes that we live according to them. It's very different than memorizing five bullet points and saying, ha, cool, got it. Don't get me wrong. Having somebody who has studied scripture write down what he's learned and try and teach it, that's what we're doing here. So there's nothing wrong with the church saying, this is what I've studied, this is what I've learned, and so forth. That's perfectly healthy. What isn't healthy, or at least it isn't in my opinion, is the idea of any man 
taking on the mantle of authority, as in what I am writing and what I am teaching here is either on a par with or above what it actually says in the Bible. As I was saying on Shabbat, one of the things that Yeshua did when he came is he went through the Jewish faith as it was practiced then, and he went through it with a thatching rake because they had accumulated their versions of all of this stuff to the point where it invalidated what Moses actually said. The Catholic Church does the same thing. The Reformation does the same thing. The Baptists do the same thing. It's a human tendency. I'm not throwing rocks specifically at any denomination whatsoever. I'm simply saying that the desire to abstract and bullet point this stuff is misleading because it gives you the impression that you've got it all when you're not even close. The comment was that these revival televangelists and so forth, where they have an altar call. Nothing wrong with that. The question becomes then, how many of the people who were all overcome with emotion and came up and gave their lives to Christ, 10 years later are walking in the Lord and drawing in scripture? I don't know the answer to that question. Thinking that you're complete, and that's why I say it's misleading, because you're not complete. What you then need to do is get into the book, because the book is designed to teach people how to live well, how to prosper, how to be good citizens of the kingdom of God. The Bible is written in such a way that every personality type can benefit from it. Some of us learn big picture. Some of us learn details. Some of us learn from stories. Some of us learn from songs. And the Bible has got a way to reach every human personality type except the one who is obdurate and won't learn. If you're going at the Bible with the intention of finding out why you're right and it's wrong, then you've missed the point. But going back to Timothy here, starting in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, Paul, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Notice there's two things there. One is wisdom. The scriptures are giving you wisdom for salvation, which is to say, if you read them and apply them to yourself, what will happen is you will begin to become someone who is pleasing in God's sight. I said that very carefully now. Begin to become, because becoming that takes a lifetime. If it didn't, you wouldn't have a lifetime. So make you wise for salvation through faith. You become wise for salvation by trusting that the one who gave you the scriptures is faithful and can be relied upon, and that his word is reliable. That's what faith means. I rely on his word, I believe his word is true, I believe his word is reliable, and it will do what it says it would do. But notice that this salvation business is not a flicked switch. In another place, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the idea here is you've got to get into the book 
You've got to take the book seriously and you've got to walk in the book as best you can for the rest of your life. The idea that you can say a 20-word prayer or memorize five points and you're done is just foolishness. It's misleading. All of those things are a starting point. What you're doing when you, for example, say the sinner's prayer is you say, ah, I'm interested. I now want to get into it. But many people do not see it as an entryway. They see it as a destination. End of my rant. So, verse 16 now. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. And the whole purpose of the exercise here as you are changed by the scripture is you then become useful in God's hands. Which is to say you start doing things that are useful to him in his kingdom. That's what the good works are. Chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and Messiah Yeshua who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Colon. The charge is Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Does that sound familiar to anybody? He is writing 2,000 years ago, and it's absolutely current today because that's what's going on. People look for teachers who tell them what they want to hear. By the way, a teacher who tells you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear is a demon. That's what demons do. They talk to you about what you want to hear instead of about what you need to hear. Obviously, I'm not talking about literal demons, but a teacher who does that is doing you no service. He's leading you off into sin, error, and eventually death. So the idea is people will have itching ears. One of the things that C.S. Lewis says, which I like very much, I don't think there's anybody in the United States that couldn't tell you if asked what the gospel is. C.S. Lewis said, that our society has been inoculated with a weak and impotent strain of Christianity so that when they come up against the real thing, they're immune. And so the Jesus Loves Me Sunday School Gospel that virtually anybody in the United States could probably tell you isn't convicting. Repentance. It doesn't feel like I need to repent in the face of this Sunday School Gospel because... I'm okay, you're okay. Remember that from, what, 20 years ago? The whole idea that we're okay? Well, some of us are more or less okay than others, but the point is, we all need to walk in this our entire lives and one hopes continually move up closer and closer to God with the understanding that you'll never quite get there. But that's what you should be striving for. Verse 5. As for you, you being Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. An evangelist is the anglicization of a Greek word, which means tell the good news. 
be a preacher. Fulfill your ministry. And of course, remember early on, it says, remember the gifts that you received when we laid hands on you. That was the ministry that Timothy was given. Verse 6, for I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. As I said at the beginning of this, this is sort of Paul's last letter before his execution. Verse 9 through 18 is just a list of people. I'll read it quickly. I have no insight into any of them. Read it for the record. So verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troyes, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Mark and Luke accepted. I have no idea who any of these people are, but the point is, Timothy and Paul both know who they are. So this is inside baseball talk. And it's written down, so we'll read it, but it doesn't do anything for me. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul is probably referring there to Daniel. In other words, I got thrown into the lion's den and God shut their mouth. I don't think he's talking about the circuses that happened later where Christians were thrown to the lions. That's a later thing than this. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this list of people who have deserted and abandoned and opposed Paul, what he's saying is at the end of that, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, which is this list of things that he has just gone through. And then verse 19. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus, remained in Corinth, and I left Tropimus, who was ill, in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greeting to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Therein is Second Timothy. Next up will be Jeremiah.